about just moving on and going into something completely different. And when we start reading the text tonight, uh, you're going to know why. We are moving into a section uh, that is called the Book of the Covenant. It's this kind of three-chapter space that happens right after the Ten Commandments. Uh, so the Ten Commandments are kind of the big summary of the law. And then uh, God and Moses begin to get into kind of the nitty-gritty, and they start to get into some specific details about the law, and we'll walk God's people through that. And tonight, um, we're going to uh, see some rules that at first glance might be kind of hard to stomach. We're going to hear laws about uh, slaves and about uh, selling your daughter to another family. And we're going to talk about uh, rules like uh, exchanging an eye for an eye. And these are texts that, if we don't do our homework, could leave us really, really confused uh, and perhaps a little bit frustrated. And that's why, by the way, I'm, I was hesitant uh, to, to teach through this section tonight. Not because I'm embarrassed of this. It's not because the things that we're about to read uh, I want to kind of shy away from or, or any of those things. I, I believe that this is truly the word of God, every piece of it. Every bit of it is his. Every bit of it is true. Every bit of it is good. I believe that. And I believe that the text we're covering tonight is true and good. And this is one of the reasons that when we go through a book, we try to go all the way through it and, and not just avoid, like, difficult texts. But the issue where my hesitancy comes from is that any time we study a text, an ancient manuscript, an ancient text that at any point, and which, by the way, anything in here that we're studying is at least 2,000 years older than us. So when we go to a text uh, in a context and in a culture that is much older than us, there's always... A, an interpretive gap. There's a gap between our context and theirs that we've got to be able to bridge if we're going to be able to understand this. And there's some texts that we read where the gap is not that big, and it's kind of easy to, to understand what's going on in this situation because it's somewhat similar to our situation. And then there's some texts where the gap is huge, and, and we've got a lot of work to do to build a solid interpretive bridge to be able to cross over and fully understand what is going on. And, and tonight's text is one of those. And, and so really my, my fear is not us reading it. My fear is that we don't have the time necessary to do justice to it. And we don't. We are not going to get through all of this. We're actually only going to get through a little section uh, of it. And, and my, my hope and goal is that we'll kind of, I, I want to take one section, maybe the most difficult section, uh, for, for people to grasp and read and, and to try to kind of uh, use that as a way to give you some principles for how to understand texts like these uh, and, and to maybe put some resources in your hands. We're going to spend a little bit longer time on the first half tonight because I want to make sure that we're, we're trying to, to give this its due and then we'll do a little bit shorter in the back half. I will say this, uh, like I said, I'm even with that, even though we're going to spend a little bit longer, I'm just not going to be able to get to everything, and that just frustrates me. I've been frustrated kind of all week thinking about that. And so let me just tell you about a couple of resources that if after tonight you want to dig in a little bit more and, and figure out more, uh, there's some you can do. This, uh, this book right here is a book, Paul Copen. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. And so he, he walks through some of the more difficult texts, texts that a lot of people will, will look at, skeptics will look at, and, and blast Christianity over texts like these. And he walks through and, and helps you to make sense of those and explain uh, what's actually going on in those situations, how often the things that people are critiquing are things that they're just pulling out of context and taking shots at without actually recognizing what's going on. So this is a good book. Uh, another one is uh, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And this one is not just specifically about Old Testament texts or those kinds of things. This is just, uh, the subtitle is 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Uh, and she asks just a lot of really great questions and answers them, like, um, does Christianity denigrate women? Uh, because that's one of the accusations that will get leveled at Christianity based on texts that we're going to read tonight. Um, and so she spends a whole chapter talking about that. Uh, are, are Christians homophobic? 
whole chapter on, on that and this, and she does a great job with, uh, with these things. This one, by the way, is, I haven't checked the other one. This one is a free audio book on Spotify, so you can listen to this on Spotify for free uh, if you want to, and she is a remarkable author, uh, does a great job. So those are some resources that you can uh, take a look at if you want to jump into that a little bit more. Let me, let me kind of lay some groundwork. There are three uh, basic types of laws in the Old Testament, Old Testament laws. And we've already talked about a couple of these. Uh, the first one is the moral law. So these are like the ethics by which God's people are to live. And those ethics are based on God's character, who he is, and his design for us as his image bearers. And therefore, those ethics don't change, right? Um, so uh, all throughout, they stay the same. In the Old Testament, you should not steal. Also in the New Testament, you still shouldn't steal, okay? Um, in the Old Testament, do not commit adultery. That is a moral law that will carry all the way over into the New Testament. Do not commit adultery, okay? Um, then you have the second category is ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws are, are those laws that revolve around uh, the temple and sacrifices and the priesthood and dietary restrictions and some of kind of the odd ones that you hear like uh, uh, don't wear a shirt with two different types of material in it, some of those things. The ceremonial laws were specifically designed to set God's people apart as different from the rest of the world. They were specifically regarded around holiness. They were there to remind God's people that he was holy and that human beings are not, and that to be in the presence of a holy God requires some, some, some things to be done in our life. And so we want to we live in a way that sets us apart, and sacrifices were made, and priests um, were, were working amongst the people and, and God's representatives. And so this is the ceremonial law. Uh, this part we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, this part was fulfilled. Actually, all of the law was fulfilled by Christ. But it was um, the sacrifices were fulfilled by Christ's sacrifice, so there's no more need for animal sacrifices. Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, is the true high priest, the one true go-between God and man. So there's no, no, no more need for a priest to be my representative to God. I have access directly to God through Jesus. And so the ceremonial law, including like the dietary laws, goes away. Um, and then last is the civil laws. And these are the laws that specifically deal uh, with um, uh, the governing and judicial factions of the nation of Israel. So this has a number of different like scenarios um, in which a different crime might be committed or things that you're supposed to do. And then it, it, it talks about the different penalties that take place in those cases. And so these were laws that were specifically for the physical nation of Israel at that time. And what we're jumping into tonight is primarily civil laws. We haven't actually walked through those yet. This is the first uh, step to jump into those. So if you will, open up your Bible with me to Exodus 21. We don't actually, our projector's not working tonight, and so if, if you've got your Bible, you'll want to be in Exodus 21. We'll spend a little bit of time going into Deuteronomy and some others, uh, but you can switch there, and I'll try to read somewhat slowly for those of you who don't have yours with you. While you're switching there, let me, let me give you three truths to kind of lay the groundwork uh, for what we're about to hear tonight, and it's really important that you grasp these as we begin to build our, our interpretive bridge to, to cross over into this other culture and understand what is going on. The first one is this. God is good and always does what's right. Now, if you've been around this year, you've actually heard that one before. This is actually the third time that I've shared that truth with you. Um, and that's because I know that that is a point that I need to come back to myself. It is always our tendency to judge whether a thing is right or wrong based on how I feel about it. When I come to uh, something in a text like the Bible, when I read the Bible, my gut reaction towards it, without me even thinking about it, my gut reaction often uh, becomes for me the standard, and I judge this based on whether I like it or not, whether, rather than letting God's Word judge me based on whether I'm agreeing with it or not. And, and the danger of that, I mean, there's a number of dangers. One is that um, I might be completely, I might be misunderstanding this when I judge something is wrong. I might be completely misunderstanding the background, the context, what's happening in that. Or there's also this option that I might just be wrong. 
that maybe I do understand this and I just don't like it, and so therefore I declare it to be uh, wrong or bad. And the truth is, if, if anytime I disagree with God, I'm wrong. Anytime I did, because I, I know this, that God is good. I have seen it in my life. I read it in the scriptures. I see how it works. And everything he does is right. And so I'm, I'm going to trust that. Even when I experience moments in my life that are hard, I want to trust that God is good and is doing what is right. Even when I come across texts that are hard, that God is good and does what is right. Here's the second thing you need to know. Much of what we're about to read is what's called case law. Okay, some of you guys know case law. We talk about, even, even today, we talk about in legal systems like case law. That is specific laws that are dealing with very specific situations. So almost every one of the laws in Exodus 21 and 22 start with one of two words. When such and such thing happens, or if such and such thing happens, here's what you do. Here's how you handle it, Okay. Um, and in case law, specifically in these laws, this is not presenting the ideal situation, right? So one of the laws is, if a human being gets gored to death by an ox, here's what you do. Now, when it says that, they are not saying, Moses is not saying, by the way, this is a good thing, and we hope that people get gored to death by oxen all the time. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, this is a really sucky situation, but when it happens, here's how you handle it. Okay, uh, another one. When two men get in a fight and one of them has a weapon in his hand and he hits a guy and, but, and accidentally kills him with it, right? He's not saying, I hope this happens every day. You know, just like we always get in fights and hit each other in the head when, when, when we're always doing that. No, this is, this is not an ideal situation. But these kinds of things will come up from time to time. And so when it does, here's how you deal with it. Um, and then here's the third thing you need to know connected to that. In these laws... In all of the law, actually, God is working with hardened hearts in a broken world. God is dealing with hardened hearts in a broken world. So there's this story in Matthew 19 where the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him this question that was highly debated in that day. There were these two major camps and they went back and forth on this issue all the time. And so they wanted to weigh Jesus in on this and get his thoughts. Mostly they just wanted to try to trap him. But they come to him and they say, Jesus... Is it right and legal for a man to divorce his wife for any reason he deems fit? Jesus' answer is no. No, not at all. God, in the beginning, God created the male and female, and he designed that they would come together to be one flesh, and so you don't pull that apart. And they go, aha, because now they feel like they've got him. Aha, but, but you say they can't do that, but then why does Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, why does Moses say that it's okay that, that a man should give a woman a certificate of divorce when he wants to leave her? And Jesus' answer is really fascinating, and I think that it, it speaks to a lot of what we see in the Old Testament. Jesus says this, Moses gave you that command because your hearts were hard. And actually, if you go back and read that command in Deuteronomy, it is not saying you should divorce your wife. We want you to divorce your wife. That command is set up as a protection for women that says that if a man chooses to leave his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce that says he no longer has any rights to her. And, and if you read on from there, it says that actually the man can't say, I don't want to be with you, and then two days later go, no, no, never mind, you're coming back to me. No, I don't want to be with you. He says, you can't do that to somebody. And so when in that situation, if someone's going to do that, then you give them a certificate of divorce. It's designed as a protection. And Jesus says, though, that's not God's ideal. The ideal is Genesis 2. In the beginning, God made them male and female so that they could come together. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. Much of what we're about to read is describing things that God is not necessarily for. But he is dealing with people with hardened hearts and in a broken world. The rules that we're about to read here are rules that are coming into a world without the systems for justice and security that we have. Back in the ancient Near East, there's no filing for bankruptcy when things go bad for you. Um, there, is no, uh, there is no system of uh, welfare. There is no insurance. If your house burns down, you don't have insurance. If your crops burn down, burn, burn away, there's no insurance to cover that. You're just hosed. Uh, there's no soup kitchens to go get in line at. And so there are no safety nets in, in issues of extreme poverty or difficulty. And so there are some dire situations that come up and that need to be able to, to be dealt with. Um, 
So this is, this is really important for us to be able to kind of grasp that as we get into this. Um, God is working within the culture, and he is putting constraints on bad situations. And as he puts these constraints on these situations, he is also sowing seeds. Through these little laws, he is sowing seeds that are eventually going to lead to transformation of hearts and transformation of culture to where rules like this won't need to exist anymore. All right? So... That's the setup. Now some of you, a lot of you are going, okay, we get, what are the crazy rules that you're, you're waiting to hear about? Like, what are we talking about? Okay, now we'll get to them, all right? Exodus 21, uh, starting in verse 1, says this. These are the ordinances that you are to set before them. That's the Israelites. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years, and then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master, and the man must leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man. His master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door at the doorpost, and his master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve his master for life. So this is the main area that we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight, this issue of slavery. And slavery is an issue that we are rightly sensitive to in our country because of our history as a nation. Uh, because of the, the roots of slavery in our nation. And our minds, when we think, when we hear the word slave, our minds immediately go back to the 17 and 1800s in America. Our minds immediately go to the transatlantic slave trade that shaped so much of America's early years, uh, what's called chattel slavery, in which a slave was fully and forever the property of his owner. Uh, and this was a slave trade in the early 1800s, 1700s, even all the way back to the 1600s. This was a slave trade that was provided or continued through captives who were being taken by force in Africa. Whether they were be take, being taken by other African tribes and then sold to Europeans or being taken by force by Europeans themselves, they were being enslaved in that moment and then brought across the sea, across, across the ocean to be sold into slavery at that point. Um, that, the transatlantic slave trade, was and is, anything like that today, is an evil practice and it is condemned by Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That practice is condemned. In fact, one of the places where it is going to be condemned is in this very chapter. Look ahead with me to verse 15 real quick. It says, uh, no, I'm actually in, sorry, give me just a second, 16, yep. Uh, Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. Okay? And the idea here is kidnapping a person is kidnapping them to make them your slave. And whether you keep them for yourself or whether you sell them to someone else or whether uh, you are found to own someone that was sold to you, whether you bought someone, that is uh, explicitly spoken against in the scriptures here. It is specifically condemned and uh, with the death penalty in this chapter. So then the question has to be asked, why does it condemn it in verse 16, but it seems to be cool with it in verses 2 through 6? And this is our first hint that what we're learning about in verses 2 through 6 is not the same thing that America did in the 1800s and the 1700s. Those are two different practices. Uh, because uh, what's happening here is not condemned. What's happening in America in the 1800s is. What's happening in verse 16 is condemned. So we're dealing with something that is uh, unique and different from what we've uh, heard about in our past, what we've known about in, in our history. As we said, there were no safety nets in this day. And if life took a hard turn for someone, there was little to keep a person from being absolutely destitute. If the crops burned down, if there was famine in the land, if, if raiders came in and took everything you had, there, were, there weren't other options. There weren't backup plans. There was nothing in front of you except for homelessness, uh, a life of destitute poverty, possibly even starvation for you and your family. 
Even though God had set up a number of practices to try to help the poor, in Deuteronomy 15, God gives this command, you do not harden your heart towards the poor. You give generously to the poor. That's one of his commands given to the people of Israel, that they would always care for the poor amongst them. In Leviticus 23, there's a specific law in the Israelite code that says that you never harvest all of your grain that you never harvest all of your field, that you intentionally leave the edges of your field unharvested so that the poor can come by and eat out of your field. This is specifically designed to help those in need, but there would still be cases in which a person could become uh, completely uh, at the end of themselves, in which they do not have options for themselves or for their family. And in this case, a person could willingly become the servant of another to pay off their debts or just to have a second chance at life, to have food on the table for themselves, to have a roof over their heads. And remember, this is not the ideal. This isn't something that, that they're hoping is going to happen, but they know that this is a situation that will happen at some point. But, and here is the difference between this and chattel slavery, that person was not the forever property of their master. It was a contractual relationship in which they worked for seven years, and then after six years, in the seventh year, they were to be released. They were to be set free. And if the master abused that person while they were serving in their household, if they maimed them in any way, if they brought any sort of permanent injury on that person, then that slave was automatically set free, automatically free to go. We'll actually read those verses in just a bit. And if a slave ran away from their master... Okay, this is a big deal. This is one of the things that kind of sprung the Civil War a little bit was laws over whether states had to return runaway slaves. Uh, to one another. That was a big deal. In Israel, if a slave was to run away and you found that runaway slave, you were legally obligated to not return him to his master. It was the law that you could not return him to his master. Listen, this is from Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. So the Bible says if you return him to his master, you are wronging him and you are not to do that. So question, if slaves could run away and no one was allowed to return them, why didn't every slave just run away? Like, why not everyone just bail and take off, and you could offer yourself to someone and then just take off, and, and you would never have to deal with the consequences of that. The, the answer is because for many, many of those slaves didn't want to run away, because as we said, this life was better. It was better to have a, a roof over your head. It was better to have food. It was better to have a trade that you were learning. And the idea was that you had a master that was treating you fairly and treating you kindly and lovingly. And that's why some would even choose, we just read about it in verse 5, where a slave says, no, I don't want to leave. Even after my six years, I love my master. I want to stay with my master. That, that was a scenario that could actually take place. Now, here's the most remarkable part, though. If a slave did go free in their seventh year, um, this is the practice that, was, that the Israelites were supposed to, to engage in. This is Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15. It says this, If your fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. We already read that part. But listen to this. When you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. You are to give him whatever the Lord your God has blessed you with. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I'm giving you this command today. Uh, that is, you know what it's like to be in slavery. You know what it's like to serve someone else. And God came, and he rescued you out of that. And he saved you. So you remember that. You remember the way God took care of you and blessed you. And when someone comes and they serve you for six years, you don't send them away empty-handed because the point is not that they do this and then they find themselves right back in the same place again. You give to them generously. Whatever God has given to you, sheep, you give him sheep. Goats, you give him goats. Wheat, you give him wheat. You, you set him up to do well in life. There is nothing like this in any other ancient Near Eastern law codes that we have. 
This is a radically, a radical departure from the, the, rest of the, the rest of the world and the way they viewed slaves and the way they treated them. So here we see the, the purpose of this was not to find cheap labor. It was to take someone in a desperate situation and give them a second chance at life to set them up for success. So what about the whole wife and kids thing? What about the whole, uh, the, the, the man gets to go, but the wife and kids got to stay if they weren't already with him? Like if Amy and my kids were already with me when we went into slavery, they get to go with me. But if like we get married both as slaves and then have kids, they stay. What, what, what's going on there? The idea behind this, I believe, is, is to keep people from gaming the system, essentially. So uh, let's see, Amy and I aren't married yet. And I go to work for somebody, and I work for them for five and a half years. So I'm six months out uh, from being freed at that point and being set up and given a lot of stuff to start my new life. I can't, um, like Amy can't go to this person and like sell herself to slavery and then marry me knowing that she's only going to have to work for five months and then gets out. Right, like there's, there's, you can't try to find loopholes to this. If if you're going to go serve someone and make a contract to serve them, then you serve them, uh, and so that's part of it. And in seven years, you are set free. But if you, but if you, if if you're trying to just find loopholes in to kind of get yourself out of debt and then go free right away, it's not going to work that way. That's that's the idea behind this law here. Now, verse uh, seven says this. When a man sells his daughter as a concubine, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. Here's where, here's where some of you go, ooh, I was just starting to feel good about this. And then we come to this one. And this is a strange verse. When a man sells his daughter as a concubine, she is not to leave as the male slaves, slaves do. Now, first, we just read in Deuteronomy 15 that female slaves do go free. They go free every seven years just like the male slaves. And you set them up uh, for success just like the others do. What's being described here in this text is something different. This is not purchasing someone as property or even as an employee. This is a kind of dowry payment that a man would make to a family for a daughter so that she might be a wife or a concubine. A concubine, you probably know, probably understand, but if not, concubine is someone who lives as a wife, but with a lower status than a wife. Okay? They live in the home, and they would be like a second wife, uh, but not the first wife. They don't have the status quite of the first wife. Um, and, and so this leads to a couple questions. Why would this be allowed, and what kind of parents would do this? What kind of parents would sell their daughter off to be a kind of second-tier wife to someone else. Uh, in this day and age, there was no such thing. In, in Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern culture, there was no such thing as a single career woman, as a single working woman. In an, in an agrarian society, much of the work revolved around manual labor, okay? Um, it, was, it was stuff that had to be done out in the field. So if there's a job for someone that they need someone to go plow a field, and Alec and I both go apply for this job to go out and do heavy manual labor in the field. The master, the employer, is going to take a real good look at me, and then the master is going to take a real good look at Alec, and then the master is clearly going to pick me to go and work in those fields, right? Um, because you, you go by body type, you go by size, and you know. So, so uh, Okay, for that reason, it is actually, as you would imagine, the exact opposite. They're going to pick Alec every time. They're going to pick Alec every time, okay? Um, but if it's me and my wife, if it's between me and Amy, uh, I'm, not, I'm not bigger than a lot of people, but I am bigger than my wife. I am stronger than my wife, and they're going to pick me. Uh, they're going to pick men to go and do these jobs. So there were not lots of opportunities for women to work. And, and, and on top of this, society needed, these communities needed to have a lot of children to thrive in a day where the mortality rate was high and, and we were dependent on having more people to work and in a day where having children was a blessing, they needed to be bearing lots of children. And so women were focused primarily on having kids and doing lots of domestic work around the house, getting water and, and doing all these things, but having kids and taking care of kids. There is no such thing as daycare. 
There is no such thing as a place to go drop off kids. And so this is primarily what women are doing, which means if you are not married as a woman in this society, there's not, like I said, there's not an option for you to just go get a college education and then go start a career. There's nothing like that. There is very little in front of a woman like this. Uh, they would be not independent and free. They would be destined for poverty. So what do you do when the young men in your village go off to war and most of them don't return? And now the ratio of women to men in the village is two to one. And all that means is basically you, you just live with your parents until they die and then you're stuck in poverty until for the rest of your life. In that situation, to, to become a second wife in a marriage, even a lower status wife was considered better than the alternative. It was considered better than homelessness and starvation. And what's being described here is not parents who are trying to get rich. Well, I got a great scheme. I got a great way to make some money. Let's have lots of daughters so we can sell them off. That's not what's going on. We're talking about a family who has come to the end of themselves and does not have the ability to, to feed their family, a situation in which you don't, you don't have options in front of you, and they are desperate to try to give their daughter a better life. Again, this is not describing the ideal. The Bible is not saying this is what we want to happen, but there are situations where this would uh, take place, and so it is setting up protections for women in difficult situations. Uh, polygamy does take place in the Bible. We see polygamy. Uh, Abraham is, has his wife Sarah, and he has a uh, concubine, Hagar. Uh, Jacob has two wives, sisters, uh, Leah and Rachel. Okay, so we see polygamy take place, but it's really important to note, to note this in the scriptures, the difference between prescriptive texts and descriptive texts. Okay, there are prescriptive texts in the Bible like uh, do not murder. That is a prescribing text. That is a command. Don't do this. This is how you're supposed to live. And then there's also descriptive texts, okay, that are not prescribing anything. They're just telling you what happened. David killed Goliath with a slingshot. That's not a prescription. That's not take a slingshot out and see if you can kill tall people, okay? That's not what that's trying to say, <laughs> all right? It's just describing something that happened, all right? And, and when it describes Abraham having Sarah and Hagar as a concubine, that is never lifted up as a good thing. In fact, time and time again, when the Bible describes a polygamous relationship, it, it continuously shows the disastrous results of living like that. And so it's, it's shown the, the ideal, and God's plan from the beginning was one man and one woman in a lifelong marriage together. And when we see people venture from that, actually, it gets described, but not prescribed. And, and it, it often looks like something that, uh, that does not go well. Uh, read verses 8 through 11 here with me. If she is displeasing to her master who chose her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has acted treacherously toward her. Or if he chooses her for his son, he must deal with her according to the customary treatment of daughters. If he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any payment. So there are three scenarios that are described here. First, a man takes a woman to be a concubine or a wife, but then he changes his mind. And in that case, the Bible says he has acted treacherously towards her. That was unfair, that was wrong, that was deceitfully. And if that happens, he must let her be redeemed. He must let her be able to go back to her family. She is not property that he can sell off to someone else. And it says that. You may not give her to someone else. You may not sell her. She's not your property. She's your wife. And so you let her go back to her family. The second scenario is that a man goes and pays for a bride, not for himself, but for his son. And if that is the case, he says this, uh, that you must treat that girl not like a servant girl, not like a handmaiden, but like a daughter. She's your daughter now. She is, she is a part of your family. She is in your home. And so you treat her in such a way. The third is that after marrying this girl, the man takes an additional wife, which is an interesting phrase there because that means that this girl is considered a wife to him, not just kind of property, but a, a wife. So he takes an additional wife. 
It says, if that is the case, then he cannot, uh, he cannot relinquish or, or let slide the way that he is providing for her. He must continue to provide for her food and clothing and marital rights. Marital rights might refer to conjugal rights. It might actually, it comes from the root word in Hebrew for dwelling. So it may mean it, to continue to provide dwelling and a shelter for her and a place to live. We don't know exactly. But if he does not continue to provide for her, if he pushes her to the side and says, I'm done with you, this is my new bride over here, she's free to go. And because he's, he's acted treacherously towards her in that situation. Uh, the idea behind these laws is to set up some form of protection so that in desperate times, when families get in tough spots, in the midst of a broken, sinful world, the most vulnerable people in that community won't be abused or discarded like property or like they're nothing. Okay, let me briefly take touch on one other code, and then we'll wrap up this first half, okay? Uh, This is from, if you want to skip down to verse 22, 22 through 25 says this, Uh, when a man gets in a fight, or when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to the judicial assessment. Assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. So this starts with describing a very, very specific situation, and then it kind of branches out into this more general principle of eye for eye. Uh, The specific situation are two men are fighting with each other, and somewhere in the context of this fight, it does not say whether this is intentional or unintentional, but one of the man's uh, pregnant wife is struck and hit by the other man. And if that happens, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, and it causes her to give birth prematurely, Even if there is no injury to her or the child, she deserves justice, and therefore a fine is set on the man. And the fine doesn't go to the courts, the fine doesn't go to the government, the fine goes to the family that was struck and hit in that situation. If there is an injury, and it doesn't clarify, the text doesn't clarify whether the injury is to the woman or to the child who was unborn at the time, if the, if the child comes out uh, and does not survive birth or if there's some sort of injury to it, it seems like he could be referring to both, either the woman or the child. If there's an injury, it says, uh, then the man must be punished eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, etc. And I wanted to bring this specific text up and this law up for two reasons. One, it sounds kind of brutal to us to think about taking somebody's hand and chopping it off because they hurt somebody else's hand or gouging out somebody's eye because they hurt somebody else's eye. And then the second reason I bring this up is because Jesus actually seems to denounce this command in Romans 5. I'm sorry, not Romans 5, in Matthew 5, Jesus didn't write Romans, and he's not in Romans. So, sorry, he is in Romans, actually, a lot. Never mind all that. So um, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So it seems like Jesus is actually going, you heard the Old Testament law say this, scrap that. This is what we do. And, and it's, it's important for us to make sure we got to get our minds around what is being described. When, when Exodus says this term, eye for eye, uh, this kind of law is actually one that's been in different cultures throughout the world. The Latin term for it is uh, lex talionis, and it simply means in Latin, the law of the tooth. Okay, the law of the tooth, a tooth for tooth, an eye for an eye. Um, it's, but, but the meaning is this, the punishment should fit the crime. Except in the case of murder, so if somebody took somebody else's life, there was a capital, that was a capital offense. And if you uh, devalue human life made in the image of God, Exodus 21 says, then your life will be devalued, your life will be taken from you for treating another life in that way. But other than the case of murder, this was not a literal law. We have no examples in Scripture where someone's actual hand was cut off because of, uh, because of hurting someone else's hand. There's no examples of someone gouging out someone's eye. That's not what this commandment was meant to be. 
even though that was actually recommended in other law codes of the world. If you go to other ancient Near Eastern law codes of this time, they chopped off your hand. They gouged out your eye. Uh, They did those things. That does not actually happen. This is a figurative statement, meaning the punishment should fit the crime. We even see this in the following verses. Look, verses 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his tooth. So you notice it doesn't say, if he knocks out his slave's tooth, then that slave gets to knock out his tooth. Because it's not literally tooth for tooth. It's not literally eye for eye. It is the punishment should fit the crime. And you don't get to be the boss of this person anymore if you do that to them. And so they are free to go. The idea behind this, uh, this type of command, it was meant to be actually an expression of moderation. In an honor-shame culture where if you dishonor me, if you hurt me, if you slap me, then honor demands that I get vengeance. And I'm not just going to slap you. I'm going to punch you. And then your honor would demand that you don't just punch me, but that you stab me. And then my honor would demand, and it would escalate and escalate. And, and the, the idea here is, goes, no, we're not, we're not doing this kind of one-upping each other in vengeance. The punishment should fit the crime, no more, no less. And in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus seems to be speaking against this, he's not actually speaking against that idea. Jesus is for the idea of the punishment fitting the crime. What he's speaking against is people misusing this law as an excuse for personal vengeance. In the Old Covenant, God's people were a physical nation state. They had an actual boundaries, the land of Israel. They were an ethnic people group that was governed by laws and judges. And so this was one of the laws that the judges used. But Jesus, when he comes, he ushers in a completely different kind of kingdom. A whole new kingdom, one without physical borders, one without ethnic boundaries, one made up of all kinds of people with transformed hearts all the way around the world. And in this kingdom that Jesus has set up for us, we don't operate like the rest of the world. I don't look for vengeance when somebody wrongs me. I don't seek to try and take that out on somebody else. I am not governed by the law like Israel was. And so I don't seek to to, to live in bitterness and try to get back because this law, Exodus 21, was for a nation. It is not for me. It is not for us. Which does lead to this question. Why are we studying this? Or more specifically, what purpose does the law have for you and I today? Like, do Christians still have to follow the things that we have been reading in Exodus 20 and 21 and 22 these last few weeks? Does this even matter for us? Is it even relevant at all? That's what we're going to talk about uh, after the break. So take a minute, stretch, do some jumping jacks, whatever, and then we'll jump back in here in a second. Second half would be shorter. And it will be, I think. Uh, We have spent the last four weeks talking about the law, walking through Ten Commandments and then tracing out how that law applies in other ways and in other situations, Uh, and then talking through this Book of the Covenant section. We're actually still going to be in the Book of the Covenant next week in chapter 23, talking through some of those things. Um, talking through this law that God gave to Israel. And this was an extremely important moment in the life of Israel and an extremely important part of their covenant with God. Uh, You remember Alec talked about it a few weeks ago, kind of the marriage ceremony that takes place in, I believe it's Exodus 19, where God is up on the mountain and the people are down there and Moses goes back and forth basically to, to kind of bring the terms to them and say, hey, God... God has said he wants to be your God. Do you want to be his people? And if you want to be his people, will you abide by his law that he's going to give you? And they say, we, we do, right? And God says, I do. And, they, and now they are kind of bonded together in this covenant. This law is a part of that covenant. They choose to follow those things. It is extremely important for God's people in the Old Testament. But is it still important for us? Is it still true? that this is a critical part of our relationship with God. If Jesus has come and brought a new kingdom through his death and resurrection, then do these laws still apply to us today? That's actually a really big question. Uh, And it is one that uh, a lot of Bible scholars have said is one of the trickiest issues in all of the Bible to nail down. 
what exactly is the role that the Old Testament law plays in the lives of Christians today? That is one that people have gone back and forth on for quite a long time. And part of what makes it so difficult is that the New Testament writers sometimes seem to make us think this and sometimes go over here and seem to make us think the opposite. Uh, the way they talk about it seems to vary from, from place to place. For example, you'll see Paul say this in Romans 7, 6. But now we, that is followers of Jesus, we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Or he'll say in Romans 6.14 that we are not under the law, but instead we are under grace. And so it sounds like Paul is going, this has no relevance for us. It doesn't apply to us. It doesn't matter anymore. But then you go to Ephesians 6, and Paul quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and says, do that, because that's the commandment that God gives. And that commandment comes with a promise, so we should follow that. And you go, whoa, 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 wait, which, which is it? What exactly is he trying to tell us in that situation? You'll see Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law. No, until heaven and earth pass away, not a, not a jot or a tittle, not the slightest little stroke of the law will pass away. It all stays. It all remains. But he'll also say in that same sentence, he'll say, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And as we discussed earlier, fulfilling it means a number of things. One, that Jesus lived it out perfectly. But two, that Jesus has actually done away with part of, part of the law, at least. Um, in, in Mark 7, 14, Jesus declares all foods to be clean. And what he means by that is all foods are now, like, on the table, so to speak. I just realized that's a good little pun there. On the table, like, they are... You are allowed to eat those. Everything that was forbidden in the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. You can eat those things because that was part of the ceremonial law, and it's done away with in Jesus. And so Jesus seems to talk like, no, it really matters. It's staying with us, and then part of it seems to go away. And so it's hard to be able to figure out exactly what is going on. What is the law's purpose, if any? Does it have any purpose for us now? I want to take just a bit to talk about what the law is and what it's not what it can do for us, and what it cannot do for us. Because when the Bible is saying these things that seem like two different views, Paul says this over here and this over here, Jesus talks like this and then this, it's, it's not two different versions of the law, it's talking about what the law can do and what the law cannot do. What purposes it serves and what purposes it does not serve. So there are essentially... Again, there's been a lot of debate back and forth throughout history, but, but I think a lot of Christians have kind of fallen under throughout church history that there are essentially three purposes of the law, three purposes of the law for us today, and there's a lot of overlap between this and the purposes that it would have had for the Old Testament, but the, here's how it applies to us. Um, number one, first purpose of the law is to restrain evil and wickedness in the world. We see this in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, where Paul says, But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent. And this is actually the primary use of the law that we studied tonight. Much of what we studied tonight uh, was describing civil laws that showed how people should act in certain scenarios and the consequences or punishments for not doing that, uh, which, by the way, is very much how our legal system works here in the United States today. Uh, there are a lot of laws uh, that are put forth in, in, in our legal system and a lot of penalties attached to those laws, whether that would be a ticket for speeding or jail time for stealing from someone, or, or whatever it may be. There, there are all kinds of laws, and there are all kinds of penalties. And the penalties are there as a deterrent, right? If you steal something, you could go to jail. And the idea of telling you that law is to keep you from wanting to steal something. Because I don't want to face those consequences. I don't want to, to go through those punishments. Those are meant to deter people in a broken world from going as far as they would go. Like if there was nothing to restrain people, then they would do more 
bad things. This is like recognized by our government, and that's why we set up laws, and it's recognized in the Old Testament that in a broken world, people will do many sinful things, and so the law is set up as a restraint, and the laws in Exodus 21 and 22 are civil laws for the nation of Israel in that specific time that says these are the punishments if you do not hold to these things. Now, we do not live by those laws anymore. We don't live by uh, we, don't, we don't walk through, like, what happens if my ox accidentally gores Colby? Like, what's, what's the, what are the odds? That, like, what are the things that we got to do? Well, you got to stone the ox to death, and then I can't eat any of that ox. That, like, we don't follow those laws anymore. Those are civil laws for Israel and for their people. We'll try to follow some of them. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just watched Caleb Raynor just bolt for that phone and grab it and then take off out the back door, so... Sorry about that. Uh, but this, even though we don't follow those specific civil laws, the general principle of this still applies today, that there is a standard that God has for us. And when we violate that standard, there are consequences. We will face discipline from God. And those who are never made right with God will face judgment and punishment from God because they have violated the standards. And the law, when it tells us that, is meant to, to deter us from doing wrong. So that's the first purpose of the law. The second purpose of the law is this, to show us how to live. We see this in 1 Timothy verses three, or sorry, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, when Paul is writing this, the Scripture he's primarily referring to is the Old Testament and many of the laws in the Old Testament. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is primarily what the moral law does. So, like the Ten Commandments, they are there to show us how to live. They are there to reveal God's heart and God's character. And they are there to show us how we can align our own lives up with that character. God is holy and loving and true and faithful and generous. And that is what I was designed to be as someone who is made in his image. And so in that sense, the law was and is, honestly, a lot like a signpost. And the idea behind the law is that it is pointing me the way that I ought to go. It is showing me, it is pointing me to true north. And this is why, by the way, God's people, when they talk about the law in the Old Testament, you will never see them describe the law as a burdensome thing. They'll never talk about it like, oh, I cannot believe 613 laws we got to keep. Can you believe this? How in the world is somebody supposed to keep all those? Why would we have all these different restrictions on us? They don't talk like that in the Old Testament about the law. We tend to think that way. I can't believe that you would have to put up with that many different rules and laws and all those little things about what kind of shirt you could wear and whether or not you can eat shrimp or pork or, or all these different rules and laws. To us, that sounds crazy, and we tend to make a big deal about how restricting it is, but that's not how they thought. They thought something more like this. If there is a God, then I want to know how to please that God. If there's a God who made all this, who made me, and there's a way to live that makes me right with him, a way that lines me up with who he is, a way that lines my life up with the design that I was meant to live, with the, the, the right way to live, the best way to live, I want to know what that law is. And so the fact that they were given this was not something to go, oh man, I can't believe it. This was something to rejoice over. Imagine you are making your way through a dense, thick, dark jungle, trying to find your way out, trying to make it whole. And you realize that you've been in there for hours making your way through. And the longer you struggle and the longer you walk around, the more that things just start to look all the same. It feels like I passed that tree just a little while ago. Could have sworn I saw that rock just a little while ago. And it, it begins to dawn on you that you have no idea where you are. You have no idea how to get out. You have no idea where home is or even which direction you should be going. 
to try and get that way. And then all of a sudden, you come upon a sign that says that way. That's where home is. That's where freedom is. That's, this is how you get out. Would you go, oh, can you believe this? Trying to tell me what to do with my life, right? Can you believe like it's, it's going to restrict me to only this way to go? No. You would be thrilled to have some bit of hope, to have something telling you this. Now I know. Now I finally know where to go. Now I finally know the direction to walk. Now I finally know how to get out of here. This is something that you would want. You finally know the way home. All I have to do is follow this sign. That's how they thought about this. All I got to do is follow the sign. There's just one problem. And that's that I can't. I can't follow the sign. I can't do it. I don't, I don't have the strength to follow that all the way through. I don't have the ability, I don't have the stamina to see it all the way through. If God is the standard, and if what this is pointing to me is to what he is like and what his heart is and what he made this world to be like, I am going to fall short of that standard every time. I'm going to fail in every way possible over and over again. As a matter of fact, actually, the better analogy would not be that you're walking through a jungle trying to find your way out. The better analogy is that you're in a canoe and you're trying to paddle your way through a jungle river trying to get your way out. And you come across this sign that tells you that's the way home. That's the way to go. The only problem is that that sign is pointing upstream. And that current is bearing down on you at an unbearable rate. And so even though now I know the way to go, it doesn't matter how hard I paddle. I cannot go against the current that keeps pushing me back the other way. That's what it is to try to follow God's law in a broken world that is consistently pushing me against the holiness of God. That is consistently calling me away from what God has in mind for me. No, 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 no. Never mind the world. That's what it is to try to follow God's law when my own heart consistently pushes the other way. When my own heart naturally wants to do the opposite of God, what God wants me to do so often. When I have a heart, when I live in a fallen world that has me living with a sinful nature that every one of us is born with. Every one of us is born with a propensity, with a leaning towards, with a, uh, with a bent towards sinfulness in us. Every one of us is, uh, is born with this, this automatic desire to live for myself and not for God. I'm naturally drawn towards self-centeredness when I should be thinking about this. I am naturally drawn towards lust and objectifying other human beings when I should not. I am naturally drawn to want other people to serve me rather than me to serve them. I am naturally drawn to talk about people behind their back because it makes me feel close with the person that I'm talking to. When that is the case in me, this sign can point me in the direction that I should go all at once. It can point me there all day, but pointing me there is not enough to get me there. The problem is because I, my issue is not just something out there. I don't need more information. I don't need to know where to go. I do need this. I need this, but I, I don't need just this. I don't just need to know the direction. I need a change of heart. I need, some, I need, a, I need a motor on my canoe rather than just paddles that I'm trying. I need a whole new kind of boat if I'm going to get upstream and go the direction that I'm trying to go. This is what some people might say is the greatest flaw of the law is that it can point me to life but it cannot get me there it can inform me it can direct me it can motivate me but it cannot do two things it cannot save me and it cannot change me but actually i would tell you that's not a flaw that actually touches on the third purpose of the law here's the third reason that the law exists the law exists to show us our need for a Savior. The law reveals my sinfulness to me. 
When it reveals God's heart and standard, it also reveals just how far short I fall. It's like a sign that says, home is this way, and by the way, it's a thousand miles through the jungle. And immediately I go, I can't do that. I'll never make it a thousand miles. I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have the strength in me. And that's the point. The point is to, is to show me what the standard is and help me see that I can't meet it. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.19. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions, that is sins. It was added for the sake of showing sins until the seed, that's Jesus, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So essentially, the purpose of the law was to show my sinfulness until the day that my Savior finally comes to save me from that sinfulness, to show me my need for a Savior. I am never going to paddle my way out of this jungle that I'm in. The truth is, someone's going to have to life flight me out. Someone's going to have to helivac me out. Someone's going to have to come and save me from us. But that is good news. This is good news that the sign was not just pointing me to God's heart. It was not just pointing me to God's standard. That the truth is this sign was also pointing me toward the one person who ever fully lived that out. His son, Jesus Christ. And that's what so much, as we said, of the ceremonial law is actually about. The temple was designed to show me this place where God and man could meet. And then when Jesus steps on the scene, we read and we discover that he is the one true temple. I don't meet God at a building anymore. I meet him in a person. And the priesthood was there to show me that I have, so, I have a need. I cannot face God on my own. I have, I have a need for someone to stand between God and me, to speak to God on my behalf and to speak to me on his behalf. And then Jesus comes and says, I'm the true high priest you've been waiting for. There's no need for another man. I am God himself who has come to, to be the go-between, between God and man. And, and the sacrifices that were there to show me that my sinfulness, I need a blood sacrifice, something to pay for my sin so that I could stand in the presence of a holy God. And then Jesus comes and dies on a cross, and all the sacrifices are done away with forever because the one true sacrifice has been made to draw me to him. The law was pointing me not just to God's standard, but to the standard keeper. To the one person who made it out of the jungle and then loved us enough to come back and get us. Loved us enough to come back and bring us out with him. And make a way for you and I to go home and to be with the Father forever. The law could never save us. It could never change anyone. But the problem is not with the law. That wasn't the law's purpose. That's not what it was designed to do. The problem is with me thinking that I can save myself through the law. Thinking that if I'm just good enough, or if I'm just righteous enough, or if I'm just spiritual enough, or if I just go to church often enough, or if I'm just nice enough, or if I'm just loving enough, if I'm just those things, then I'll be all right, then I can make it to God, then God is going to accept me into heaven because, you know, I was a really good person. That is the flaw. When I begin to believe that my own goodness has the ability to follow this through and please the God whose standard is perfect and holy and righteous all by myself, that is the problem. I can't. Or at least I couldn't. And that's the other amazing truth about what Jesus did when he came. Let me read this verse to you. This is Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. Romans 7 is all about how a person can look at the law and wants to follow the law and wants to do what God wants. And even if they're trying really hard, their flesh will continually drag them back and drag them away time and time again. And so the whole thing is like, the law is good, but I can't keep it. The law is there, and I want to do it, but I don't have it in me. And then Romans 8 opens up. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, weakened by the flesh. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us 
who, not, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What he's saying is actually when a person places their faith in Jesus, though they never had the ability to keep that law and to do what God wanted them to do because of their sinful nature, Jesus gives them a new nature, places his own Holy Spirit inside of them, which enables them to finally do what they were always meant to do. Not perfectly. We're still going to fail. We're still going to mess up, but faithfully. We have the ability now. We have a new heart. We have new desires. We have new strength within us by the Spirit to actually do what God wants us to do, to follow him through. So if you are here tonight, and I feel like I hear this every year from people, from students who are convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the son of God. They are convinced that following him is the right thing to do. But I hear people say things like, I'm just waiting until I get a few more things kind of figured out, until I can kind of deal with some of the bad things in my life. And then once I get that stuff figured out, then I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Biblically, that's not going to work. You're going to spend your whole life paddling against a current, a current that you cannot overcome. Because what the Bible says is you don't have the ability until Jesus enters your life. You surrender your life to Jesus, and then he takes care of that. You don't take care of that. He, he begins to work a new kind of lifestyle in you, a new kind of heart in you. So if you're waiting until you've got your life together to choose Jesus, stop waiting. You'll wait forever. You cannot make yourself right enough for Jesus. Jesus makes you right First by paying for all your sins, then by giving you a new heart. And if you have given your life to Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation. So start living like it. Stop living like you are the old person. Don't believe the lie that porn or that greed, or that self-focus, or that self-pity, or that sinful anxiousness and worry is always just going to be your lot in life, because that's just kind of who I am. It's just kind of that sin is just, that's kind of my sin that's got a hold of me. The Bible says there's no sin that actually can enslave you anymore. Not, not unless you give yourself over to it, which many of us do, but, but, but actually that we've been set free from those things because of what Jesus has done in us. And so for now, we have a law that points us to our need for a Savior, but it also tells us how to live, tells us how to line ourselves up with God's heart, and the Spirit in us enables us to finally live in a way that pleases Him, to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. For that, Jesus says, is what the entirety of the law is summed up in. That is the calling that is placed on your life, and that is possible for those who have trusted Jesus and receive the Spirit in their life. Let me pray. Oh God, if there have been places where I have been unclear or where I have uh, spoken out of turn, I pray that you would bring clarity tonight. Pray that you would uh, allow us to hear these truths in a way that lets us see your goodness. I pray for my friends tonight that they would see the greatness of Jesus, that the law is good for what it was, but Jesus is so much better. He was everything we were waiting for. Lord, help us see that, and if, we, if we've trusted him, let us rejoice in that truth and walk in that truth. And for those who haven't, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to their need for Jesus tonight. Give them the desire to find the life that truly is life. And they surrender themselves to him. I ask you that, to do that by your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. One second. Hello? All right, great. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I just feel like the thing that stuck out to me the most um, from walking through Exodus 21 is just how just that God is, that he truly does care for the marginalized and the least of these. So that's something that stuck out to me. A um, couple quick announcements as we... Uh,